We've been speaking these last several Lord's Days on the general theme, put not your trust in princes. And so last Lord's Day, we described how Saul warned Israel that demanding a king to rule over them was a bad idea, but they wouldn't heed his warning. God controls the actions of all rulers, whether for good or bad. Kings have no authority or power over God, nor can they resist His will. Sadly, Israel didn't seem to remember that it was always God who rescued the nation in the past and in the future. Their demanding a king was simply the latest installment of their rebellion against God, who was already their king. But having their own human king would not save them from God's judgment if they continued in their sin. King or no king, Israel would continue to be judged for its sin. Seeking after a king was a vain thing. It could not profit Israel. It could not save Israel from God's judgment for their sin. Israel's attempt to escape judgment with a king would fail, Samuel promised them. Samuel gave this ominous warning. If ye will still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. Note very closely, the wickedness of the people ends up destroying their king. With this simple promise, God overthrows all of man's attempts to institutionalize righteousness and peace and happiness. Rather than repent and turn back to the Lord, Israel thought a king could save them and then they wouldn't have to face the root causes of their discontent, their own guiltiness and sin. They thought that surely a king would solve their problem of disobedience by delivering them from the consequences of their sin. This is the way with all people. We think we can solve our problems by creating new institutions and authorities and governments. We think that if only we had reliable earthly entities to reign over us, surely all these dysfunctions, these problems could be solved for us. What we need is a constitution that will fix the evil we fear. What we need are more laws to put a stop to wrongdoing. What we need are courts with full power to declare what is right and wrong in order to save us. We need democracy so that the people can decide what is right and wrong. Surely the people won't go wrong. We need international treaties which will surely save us since they will have the weight of world opinion in support of them. We need a United Nations to settle the problems of all of our squabbling nations around the world. In religious matters, what we need are denominations to organize and regulate our religion and tell us what we ought to believe. We need popes to declare ex cathedra what the Bible teaches and what we must believe. And then after we have created a host of ways to institutionalize power and right and happiness we spend the rest of our days trying to reform those institutions and set them back on the road we intended them to travel from which they quickly went astray. But these all fail because they cannot address the underlying sin in our hearts individually and societally. We disobey God and trouble comes and we propose not to obey God but to institutionalize our own vain solutions. At best, these institutions ultimately collapse in failure. At worst, they turn against us and destroy us. 
Because of our sin, God judges both us and our kings, just like Samuel warned so long ago. If ye shall do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. The psalmist warned us in Psalm 146 to put not our trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. The reason given is that all men die and are buried, and their thoughts perish with them. But not so with our God, who made all things, and keeps truth and does justice for the oppressed, and heals the blind, and loves the righteous, and destroys the wicked. And the psalmist concludes, The Lord shall reign forever. Even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations, praise ye the Lord. But there is one man who has and will forever institutionalize safety and righteousness and justice and power for His people. That God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. If we must institutionalize a king, then let it be Jesus. It must be Jesus. It can only be Jesus. Yet when Jesus came and proclaimed the fulfillment of the promises of Psalm 146 in Nazareth early in His ministry, His kinsmen rejected Him and tried to destroy Him. Indeed, He was despised and rejected of men, and we would not have this man to rule over us. Just as they rejected the rule of God in Samuel's day, even to this day, most of the world rejects the rule of King Jesus, the only one who can attain the virtues we claim to desire. We will have our own institutions and rulers and kings before we will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. The reason that the human institutions never work is because the people cannot obey God's commandments and the kings we appoint cannot make us do so. Therefore, we are consumed along with our king. Not so with the Lord Jesus. He has obeyed all the commandments in our place. And His obedience is accounted to us for righteousness when we trust in Him. Not only so, He takes away all of our sins from us on the cross by dying in our place and being punished for our crimes so that all who trust in Jesus are set free from judgment and death. Christ is not only the institutionalization of the rule of right and power and justice and peace. He's also the only cure for what got us into this mess in the first place. Our disobedience, our inability to obey God. In the end, all of our human institutions will be consumed because of our sin. Not so our great King Jesus. His rule and His kingdom are forever. He is the consummation of all the hopes of His people. He shall reign until He puts all things under His feet. Our great King grants us forgiveness and repentance. He paid the price with His blood. That is why He is the King of glory. But now, this great curse, as far as the world is concerned, it haunts us all. But if ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both you and your king. Surely the most tragic example of this truth is found in the example of good king Josiah. He was the last good king of Judah before the whole land was carried off into captivity and enslavement. And if you remember, 
his wicked relative had usurped the throne and tried to kill off all the royal children, and he escaped. And he was hidden out by the priest. When he was eight years old, he was crowned king, and the insurrection was overthrown. And he came into his heart to refurbish the temple which had fallen into disrepair. We read this morning, Second Kings, the 22nd chapter. And of course, while they were busy about repairing the temple, at verse 8 it says, Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work and that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. Now that's because he discovered that Israel had trampled upon the holy law of God. But more particularly, you see, part of the law was the curses that God promised upon those who broke the law. And if you look at verse 19, we see that part of what struck King Josiah about the law was this judgment that God promised that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you remember we preached, what, 21 messages on the subject of the curse of the law. That is the promise of wrath and judgment upon all who disobey God's commandments. And so it wasn't just that the law told Israel what it was supposed to do and that Josiah recognized that we hadn't been doing any of these things. They hadn't even been keeping the Passover. But worse than that was the promise that the law made of wrath and judgment and curse and desolation upon all the people who wouldn't keep the law. So King Josiah says, go and ask the prophet whether there's any hope for us. He said, go ye inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according to all that which is written concerning us. Notice that the king is not like some modern so-called Christian teachers who can't see the connection between the curse of the law and the wrath of God. And so they say Christ didn't bear the wrath for us, even though it says He was made a curse for us. You see, everyone who understands primitive, simple truth from the Scriptures understands that the curse of the law portends God's wrath poured out upon those who have broken the law. And King Josiah was not a fool so as not to recognize this as so many modern people are. But notice the horrible answer. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, tell the man that sent you to me, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read. Because they have forsaken me and have burnt incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place, 
and shall not be quenched. Now notice that this particular prophecy foretold wrath upon the people and judgment because of this idol worship, idolatry. In other places, and next to that, is the shedding of innocent blood. That the whole land is drenched in the shedding of innocent blood and God's wrath will not be turned away from that horrible, horrible crime. But Josiah sought mightily to save his country by introducing a massive reformation and cleansing of the nation. And we read of this in Second Kings, the 23rd chapter. And we'll read some excerpts from this passage. It's quite lengthy. At verse 1, the king sent and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. And then it says that He commanded the priests and their subordinates to go throughout all the land and, for example, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal right up in the temple. They had vessels that were sanctified to Baal. And he put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Jerusalem to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the planets, to the host of heaven. And he broke down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the grove. So you see, they had annexed to the temple of the living God establishments of the vilest ill repute next door to the temple of God. And he put all these priests to death who burned incense to false gods. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnon, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Moloch. So these people were offering their own children as burnt sacrifices to these pagan gods. Josiah had those places polluted and pulled down so that they couldn't be used for those purposes anymore. And he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entering in of the house of the Lord. They had dedicated images of horses to the sun and not unto the Lord. Right next to the place where the Lord was to be worshipped. And the altars that were in the top of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, did the king beat down and break them down from thence and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had builded, to Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and to Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Malcolm, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. You see, there had been altars. There had been altars 
and high places built by great King Solomon that had survived all through the entire history of Israel and Judah from Solomon's day all the way to almost the end. And good King Josiah went and tore those things down. Imagine that such a wise person as Solomon, the king, should have sunk to such depravity. But apparently it had something to do with him marrying all those foreign wives and trying to satisfy their false religious notions. It goes on, the altar that was at Bethel, now this is in Israel, that King Jeroboam had built when the kingdom was split, and the high places which Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that's a constant theme throughout Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, that Jeroboam had made Israel to sin. And he was the king that followed in the northern part of Israel right after Solomon had died. And all through the history of that northern kingdom, this phrase is repeated over and over and over. He made Israel to sin. All the kings followed after the sin of Jeroboam the son of Nebat who made Israel to sin. And he break down, that is Josiah, break down and burned the high place and stamped it small to powder and burnt the grove. Then at verse 19, all the houses also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger, Josiah took away and did to them according to all the acts which he had done in Bethel. And he slew all the priests of the high places that were there upon the altars and burnt men's bones upon them and returned to Jerusalem. So see, his reformation extended outside the boundaries of his kingdom of Judah. He went next door to his brethren, the other tribes of Israel, and set about to purge their idolatrous ways also. And then it says, the king commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover unto the Lord your God as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not holden such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel nor in all the days of the kings of Israel nor of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of the king Josiah wherein this Passover was holden to the Lord in Jerusalem. Now notice this, that this Passover was one of the most solemn remembrances of how the Lord had saved the people from slavery that one could imagine. It was so central to the whole life and culture of the Jewish people and that they had not been faithfully celebrating that Passover. And so therefore they had not been reminded nor their children reminded of the lamb that was slain and the blood that marked the door by which the death angel was prohibited from entering into the house and destroying the firstborn as he did throughout all the land of Egypt. Think about it. They had neglected the foundational ceremony celebrating the foundational rescue by the sacrificial lamb a picture pointing to Jesus. They had neglected to celebrate it, but King Josiah reinstated it there. Then look at what he says. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem did Josiah put away 
that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. So you see, Josiah undertook and accomplished a reformation of his people and of his nation that was breathtaking in its scope and that was faithful to what God's Word commanded. Yet, if you think about it, it was only an outward reformation. Josiah couldn't change the hearts of the people and he couldn't forgive their sins. And so we read these awful words at verse 25 of Second Kings 23. Like unto him, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all of his might according to all the law of Moses. Neither after him rose there any like him, notwithstanding the Lord turned not at the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. No one could take away the sin of the people. No one could take away the sin of the kings of the people. No amount of reform and law-keeping and offerings, none of that could rescue the people from their destruction. And you remember what the Lord had said, if ye continue in your wickedness, you will be destroyed and your king. And surely it was about to come to pass. Think of the offerings that were made by the king, by the people, by the priests during this time of reformation. But as Hebrews puts it, the blood of bulls and of goats can never take away our sin, can they? And so there was no undoing the promise of the curse for these people by these means, by reformation, by purging of the land, by a resumption of obedience. There was no, there was no escape from the curse of the law. Josiah could not undo the sins of his people. He could not atone for these sins. Even in his death at the end of his kingdom, his death that he died defending his people, that death had no salvific effect, you see. But our good King Jesus is far and above greater than their good King Josiah. Listen to the difference. You see, the people's sins destroyed both them and their kings. But our sins destroy neither us nor our King Jesus. More on this next Lord's Day. There are many, many examples in Christ's ministry that make it clear that unlike the curse that Samuel placed on the people, that their sins would destroy both them and their king. The Lord Jesus was never destroyed by our sins, was He? It was impossible that He should be destroyed by our sins. We'll talk about it more next Lord's Day. But note this, where those endless sacrifices could never take away the sin of the people, and therefore those sins destroyed the people and their king, one day John the Baptist looked up and saw our Lord Jesus walking up the road and he cried out, 
Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Here finally is a sacrifice that takes away the sin of all those who put their trust in Christ. He is God's Lamb who takes away sin where no other Lamb could do. He laid eyes, think about this, that John the Baptist laid eyes upon such a Lamb as our Lord Jesus. No one in the history of the world had ever spied a Lamb that could take away sin until this moment when John the Baptist saw and believed that here is the Messiah, the Lamb of God who can take away our sin. And I'll tell you this, there's none other lamb since that can take away sin. Christ the heavenly lamb took all our sin away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than all the others that went before and any that might have come after. And as for that dreadful curse of the law that Josiah feared but could not escape, our Lord Jesus satisfied, canceled, and nullified it as it pertained to us, didn't He? Galatians 3.13 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. You see, Josiah could not redeem his people from the curse of the law. No matter how many good deeds he did, no matter how many works of righteousness he piled up, no matter how faithful he was to be obedient to God's commandments, no matter how much the people conformed to Josiah's wishes to obey and keep the law. That curse was already set in stone against them. And Josiah, even in his death, could not redeem his people from the curse of the law. But our Lord Jesus does. He already has. He ever will. Now some might say that what we need is a king that could be destroyed in the place of his people and not with them in their sin. And that might seem to be reasonable. And in a sense, our King Jesus was destroyed in the place of his people for our sin, and yet he wasn't destroyed either, was he? No, he is raised in power and glory, and he will raise up his people one day as well. The accurate description is this, rather than being destroyed like His people for their sin, our Lord Jesus, by His sacrifice and mighty power, changes His people to be like Him in holiness, in righteousness, and ultimately in everlasting life. And we read of this glorious change, a change that no earthly king could ever work in His people, could He? No matter how holy and righteous and just that king was, he could never work this change in his people to take away their sin, to redeem them from the curse, and to conform them unto God's testimony and law. But in Philippians 3, at verse 20, we remember these beautiful words, for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark this, who shall change our vile body that it might be fashioned like unto His glorious body 
according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So you see that our Lord Jesus, our great King, has a power far beyond the power of reform, outward reform, and a physical purging of overt public crimes that King Josiah exercised mightily, but it wasn't enough to save. Our King is not limited like that. Our King changes His people who were bound in sin so that we're no longer bound in sin anymore. And He takes away the curse by being made a curse for us. And He rises again in power and glory and everlasting life. And He converts His people into His image of holiness, righteousness, and everlasting life. In olden times, the people destroyed themselves by their sins and they destroyed their kings. But our king rises again and saves himself and his people from destruction forevermore. So that the Lord Jesus unwinds the curse of the law and unwinds the curse that Samuel laid upon the people that their own wickedness would destroy both them and their king. But our king lives forever in power and glory. And so will all of his people whom he has redeemed, whom he has rescued from the curse of the law. Now at the Lord's table, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made to make all this possible, to redeem His people, to forgive us of our sin, to purge our unrighteousness, to take us out from under the promised wrath of God by being subject Himself on the cross to that same wrath in our place as our substitute. You see, our King represents us fully in all matters of eternal import and purpose. And He is the righteous King. He is that representative before the throne of heaven that we so desperately needed. The One who is Jesus Christ the righteous, who speaks for us, who pleads for us, who represents us, who died for us. And around this table, we remember His body cruelly torn on the cross as our sacrifice, we remember His blood poured out for the remission of our sin, the Lord Jesus promised the night He was betrayed when He ordained this precious feast for us. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table and first for the bread that pictures the body of our dear Redeemer. Oh God, our Father, we thank You that our King Jesus did not die in vain for His people like King Josiah did. That our King Jesus did not put in a a good show and uh, do His best and fail in the end and be dragged under by the sin of His people. But rather, our King Jesus took our sins in His own body on the tree. He bore them in our place in the judgment and suffered all the wrath we should have suffered from Your hand for our crimes and thereby redeemed us from the curse of the law, from the wrath for our disobedience. We give you the praise that He saw this work from before the foundation of the world 
And as he drew near unto it, that night he was betrayed. He instituted a supper. He instituted a celebration so that we might know that what he did was deliberate and intentional and that he did it for a solemn and glorious purpose and that one day we would need to be reminded of it. Help us not to be like the wicked Jews who would not trouble themselves to be reminded of the Passover sacrifice, that we might never forget our Passover sacrifice and that we might be careful to celebrate it and to rejoice in it and to comprehend the body of Christ. We thank You that our lives utterly and completely depend for all eternity upon the very physical flesh and blood of Jesus sacrificed in our place to redeem us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my father if he would give thanks for the cup. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, that he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. The Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 192 in the black book. The cross, the cross, the bloodstained cross, the cross of Christ I see. It tells me of that precious blood that once was shed for me. The wrath, the wrath, the awful wrath that Jesus felt for me when bearing my sin's heavy load, He died on Calvary. Number 192.